0: He wrestled with demons, including depression and alcohol, for most of his life. But writer Mara Shadbolt still managed to produce several seminal New Zealand novels, as well as some outstanding journalism. Philip Temple has published the second and final part of his exhaustive biography. It covers Shadbolt's tumultuous personal and professional life from the early 70s until his death in 2004. This period covers some of his most famous work, including the novels Strangers and Journeys and Season of the Jew, and his in-depth journalism, covering the Arthur Allen Thomas case, the Bill Such spy trial, and the Erebus disaster. Philip Temple opens Volume 2 of Life as a Novel in 1973, the year Morris described as the one he'd most like to rewrite. His second marriage fell apart, and he struggled to cope with the deaths of several people he was close to.
1: What became apparent to me, uh, you know, during the research and writing, which wasn't that clear at the beginning, was that he had a lifelong problem with depression. And um, he would come in and out of this and uh, was unable to cope with his his, his personal relationships. And, um, he, and also going way, way back uh, to when he was young, his mother treated him like a little prince, did everything for him and he's sort of constantly looking for this ideal woman. And, of course, with each woman that he was with, uh, they failed in one way or another. I I, I didn't find any evidence of Boris being physically abusive towards his uh, different partners. Emotionally, yes, but not um, physically. In
0: 1972 also, uh, James K. Baxter had died, and Baxter meant an awful lot to Morris, didn't he?
1: Yes, uh, Baxter, he, he'd done Baxter from the 1950s when he started writing, and uh, Baxter was a kind of mentor. He, he was about oh, eight years older than Morris, so I think probably not only was there kind of a literary influence, but of course the way that Baxter behaved <laughs> as well, which has become more well-known recently, uh, probably also had an influence. But I think before Baxter died, Morris was already seeing through this... Uh, latest manifestation as the guru and uh, was, was pretty disapproving. But even so it was still a big loss and a year or two prior to that he'd lost his uh, the uncle who had also been a, a great influence in his life, possibly more than his father and his father was ill he was turning 40 uh, it, it was quite a big sort of turning point and also in his writing because Strangers and Journeys came out in 1972 which is a combination of that early period the kind of stories he wrote in the 50s and 60s. And uh, a whole new sort of world opened up um, uh, later on in the
0: 70s. I want to come back to his fiction writing, Philip, but I think perhaps a revelation for me in this book was Morris's journalistic writing and how seriously he took it. Like he wrote a huge amount for the Reader's Digest. And his writing was, I don't know, how would you describe his style of writing?
1: He started off as a journalist, of course, in the 1950s, and this enabled him to, what I think was a key thing, he had a nose for a story. So he was kind of uh, a bit ahead of the game, uh, journalistically, but also in all of his writing, because he could see what the next big thing was or what was a, 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 you know, becoming uh, into the public consciousness. And uh, the main reason he wrote all those reading and stories was simply money. Uh, I mean, he was a, a full-time you know, freelance writer, and everybody knows that, with one or two rare exceptions, it's incredibly difficult to make a living, uh, a good living, especially when he's got five kids, from fiction or, or, or good non-fiction books. So the journalism, especially Reader's Digest journalism, was to just keep him going financially. And Frank Devine, who is then the editor of the Australia Museum Zealand Edition of Reader's Digest, knew this. He actually said uh, to Morris, I'll give you, you know, you can write me six articles a year and I'll give you so much money and then leave the rest of the year free for whatever you want to write. But his other journalism, like there's an amazing story on the Such trial here for the listener, the biggest story the listener's ever run about, I think it's about 15,000 words covering the Such trial. And this showed his, his kind of imaginative approach to his journalism. And the value of the journalism... sorry, his non-fiction writing, like the Shell Guide, because he was accumulating all this knowledge about New Zealand and New Zealand people and places, and then again into the fiction, Um, especially I think the culmination of that was the Lovelock version, where his kind of all this knowledge about New Zealand and its history and so on was poured into that and uh, produced... um, a unique novel, which is uh, nobody's ever written anything like it. A great big, rambunctious, um, uh, sprawling sort of epic and alternative history, uh, as he poured real people into his fictional um, environments.
0: You um, write about—I mean, *Strangers and Journeys*, of course, catapulted him into the annals of history, literary history, really, for New Zealand. He really struggled with *Touch of Clay*
1: with Strangers and Germans, he'd finished a whole phase of his writing career um, about a world which was ceasing to exist by the 1970s, that kind of world, the New Zealand world of the 40s and 50s and early 60s. And so he thought he should move into more contemporary subjects, which he did with A Touch of Clay and Danger Zone, the, about, you know, going to Mururua, protesting the nuclear tests. With Touch of Clay, though, this was written in that midst of this personal crisis and in a really really bad uh, bad of depression and I think it was the first time that he went on drugs prescribed drugs to try and treat this depression and he went into isolation actually out of PE and um, I, I think novels that come out of that kind of situation don't actually work in the end because they they're too emotionally involved and overwritten to me anyway Uh, That was his biggest failure uh, as a novel. And Danger Zone was more successful uh, in that, because he had this direct experience of sailing to Mururua, and um, it uh, it got good reviews overseas, but not so much here.
0: Season of the Jew, he had a a kind of a love-hate relationship with that too. I mean, you say that he recognised that that would probably be remembered as his finest novel. I'm not sure he felt the same way about it, but it, it is a remarkable book still.
1: Yes, what was unusual about that, he was picking up on this changing attitude in New Zealand towards the New Zealand wars, and uh, that history, you know, the sort of traditional history, which is held sway. because the historian Jamie Bellach was also starting to uh, publish uh, papers and uh, small books on the New Zealand wars. Morris noticed what Bellach was doing and discussed it with him, and Jamie Bellach actually assisted him in his research. So Morris decided to, to take, have a new take uh, on the New Zealand Wars, which I think uh, he did very successfully. The reason I think Season of the Jew is seen as classic is because it, that was the first novel of its kind to come out, with this new look. I don't find it as good <laughs> as the second one, Monday's Warriors, where Titicawaru is actually the hero and not so much as in Season of the Jew, the Pakeha George Fairweather, Takote is also a bit of a hero in *Season of the Jew and that, that partly comes from the fact that um, Morris was uh, born and grew up sorry, grew up in Takote where of course Takote ended his, his days and helped to design the, the meeting house there and, and his very first recorded effort at school, a little story at school was about Takoti. so there was a long thread, I mean Morris was part of that hill country uh, the central North Island but uh, I think Monday's Warriors, um, in style and in emphasis, is actually a good deal better than Seeds of the Jew.
0: The, his, his time writing a play on Chanuk Bear—that was, that was a troubled time. He was not an easy—he was not an easy man. And actually, from his initial script to what happened on stage, a heck of a lot went on.
1: Oh yes, it was a drama in itself, wasn't it? I mean. Again, he was picking up on the changing attitudes towards uh, the First World War in Gallipoli. And um, he went along to a production of an, an Orson Welles uh, two act play, which, which used an unusual set. And it sort of sparked in him a, a vague idea of how, having written the reader's digest article about Gallipoli, and also um, it's part of um, the Lovelock version he started to think about a drama. And Ian Mearn, who's you know, one of the directors at the um, Mercury, yes, and then he met Chris Pugsley and found that Chris was interested as a military man in Gallipoli. And Chris really was very important in going up to Auckland as they're rehearsing this incredible play, this incredible set that the actors had to climb up as if they were on Gallipoli. And he gave them this instruction on how to do it, how the uh, soldiers would have behaved. But it was interesting that although the original script was turgid and much too big, and Mune was busy trying to cut it all the time, after the first uh, read-through, um, the actors all stood up, and many of them were in tears, because Morris had hit that nerve about, this was about the ordinary blokes. Forget about the great the military stories. This was about ordinary blokes from Wellington who had gone through this hell. But Morris didn't want the cuts that they'd done. He walked out and threatened to boycott the opening night. But in fact, it was an incredible sensation. Um, There were people sort of weeping in the aisles uh, at, at this proper representation of what Gallipoli was like.
0: He was very sensitive to what reviewers thought of his work. And this relationship with Michael King, they'd been friends, at Michael King, uh, I think, was very honest in his concerns or his dislike of Touch of Clay, absolutely loved Season of the Jew. It's a reminder of what a small country we are <laughs> and, and how difficult it is in a way, isn't it, for, for uh, literary criticism when you're very likely to know the person whose book you're reviewing.
1: Probably the tension between him and Michael King was also over the documentary that was produced about Gallipoli and how uh, Morris recognising Chris Pugsley, uh, a potential top military historian, um, and the kind of person he wanted to work with to do a documentary and kind of shut Michael out, although Michael had already published, you know, that his was at war. So I imagine that this festered with Michael for quite a long time. So this thing went backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. Uh, until the very end, where it came to a pretty sad and bitter conclusion.
0: You knew him, of course, Philip. Having delved so deeply into his life, into his journals, talked to so many people whose lives were affected by him, how do you feel about Maurice Shadbolt? Uh,
1: Of course, this is not just uh, Maurice's personal life. It's discovering his writing life, And um, I read through the whole, all his work as he wrote it. In other words, although I'd I'd read quite a bit in the past, I hadn't read everything. But I read the novels, the short stories and the plays and all the rest of it as he came to them. So I could see what the context was, the period, and what relationship he was in and all this sort of thing. And what surprised me was that I didn't have a, a pretty high opinion of his work before I started the biography. It actually grew because um, while uh, there's a lot of uh, mediocre stuff there, there are some works which I think will be lasting in the long term, like the Lovelock version and Monday's Warriors. And also I hope that his pioneering work in these different areas like uh, Gullipoli and so on uh, will be recognised as well. I think it was Kevin Arnold who said, oh, when he changes wives, he changes friends. And when he treated Bridget so badly and split from her, I just felt I didn't really want to continue uh, being too close to him. And um, that particular event um, really turned a lot of people off. I had this feeling that um, what was I going to find out uh, when I did the research, which might change my mind. Uh, it didn't actually. When I approach my work, I always try and be, if you like, accurate, fair and balanced. So I try and give him, you know, the benefit of the doubt, or not dig out all the nasty details, which is quite easy enough to do, but to, to demonstrate that he was a failure, if you like, in, in his personal relationships. But this was down to partly to his depression, partly to his psychological needs. But also, there's a photograph in the book there, which shows that at where he, when he was being buried at committee Cemetery, there were two of his ex-wives there and also two of his um, long-term partners so in other words they hadn't you know he hadn't been written off there was a kind of i suppose feeling that he was rather a pathetic person emotionally i think one of them said to me oh, he just couldn't help himself and that, that, that seemed to for her to be an explanation uh without um any business obviously regret and so on but not too much bitterness.
0: Philip Temple, whose book Life as a Novel, a biography of Maurice Shadbolt, Volume 2, 1973 to 2004, is published by David Ling.